We've got a bit of a different topic this week, Charles. We have. I've really been looking forward to this one. So we're going to be covering the energy market and all things energy, really, from what the market's currently doing and how that kind of impacts us all personally and our bills, and then the wider political landscape and how that's feeding into it. And then also more broadly looking forward around how energy markets might be changing and what that might mean for businesses and kind of insurance risks and opportunities there. So I'm really looking forward to it. And of course, energy has been a major class of business within the general insurance market for many years. There's some huge risks involved. They're very complex, wide ranging, very much affected by global events. And so I think there'll be plenty that we'll learn today that will have lots of application within the insurance industry. Yes, yeah, so really excited to welcome Rajiv Godner to the podcast. So he's a partner in LCP's technology and analytics team, and he leads the development of LCP's initiatives in our energy and other analytics practices. His background is in software development, data integration, and artificial intelligence. So welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jess. Hi, Shal. Delighted to be here. I thought we'd ask if you could introduce yourself and give a bit more kind of a background as your role and what you do here at LCP. So as you said, my background is generally in in data integration and analytics. Previously, prior to LCP, I've worked across kind of biotechnology, chemicals, and government work as well. But for the last sort of five, six years, I've been leading our work in energy technology primarily. So energy practice has two key areas. We provide long-term forecasts of the GB and Irish power market. So how much is a battery going to make over its 20 years? Or what would be the impact of building new nuclear? We provide those models to the UK government and to industry. And we also provide models to help traders and analysts trade power in real time. And that's the area of the business that I head up. So how much is the wind blowing right now? And what's that doing to power prices? Do we need to import more from France? Those kind of questions that you might need to be answering in real time. Welcome to Insurance Uncut, the podcast where we explore the big issues impacting the general insurance market. I'm Charles Cronier. And I'm Jessica Clark. And Insurance Uncut is brought to you by LCP. We'd love to hear from you, so please get in touch with your questions or feedback via LinkedIn or our website. Let's kick off with this week's episode. Energy has just gone right to the top of the agenda in recent months. There's just so much to think about. And just looking at what's in the news this week, once again, it's dominated by energy-related stories. Absolutely. It's pretty hard to open any of your news apps now and not see something around energy, which has certainly been keeping us busy for the last 18 months or so as well. For example, we've seen the news today that Russia is cutting off the supply of gas to Poland. Presumably, that has knock-on effects on various other energy markets around the world. It does, yeah. Firstly, you've got the fact that Europe is a large interconnected market, so this doesn't just affect Poland. Poland is integrated with the wider European market, so something prohibiting them being able to generate enough power from gas will have knock-on effects. And then you have the wider, both the supply side of things and the geopolitical aspect of that. We've got those kind of tensions coming on both sides that Russian gas is still required both going towards Europe and to Asia and the reliance particularly of Eastern Europe and Germany and Italy on that Russian gas makes obviously a key pawn in what's going on right now. Someone that's been in the news a lot this week is Elon Musk and Tesla. What initially I think a lot of people thought might have been a prank was that he was offering to buy Twitter but actually turns out that it was serious. So I thought that was quite an interesting story, Elon Musk continuing to surprise. But another story that caught my eye was Tesla Insurance. 
they're doing a lot in terms of the headline was Tesla insurance turning claims process into a dream. So I think they're using a lot of technology and analytics to kind of really improve and enhance the claims kind of handling process, which I thought was quite interesting. But I guess obviously Tesla itself, electric cars are heavily reliant on batteries and the energy for that. How much is kind of electric cars changing the energy market? It's going to be massive, surely. It is going to be massive from kind of a number of points. First is the demand. So electrification of transport, EVs being kind of the main driver, for want of a better word, of that is going to massively increase demand for electricity. And we're going to need to support that demand through additional sources. The fact that that source of demand is very flexible introduces a new dynamic to the power market. The fact that you can charge your car overnight when prices might be cheaper introduces that blurred line of, well, generation doesn't need to just follow demand, demand can follow generation. And so the energy market is becoming a lot more integrated. Consumers are being able to become more empowered and savvy. And EVs really sit at the heart of that. I heard a story the other day about, I think this may have been in California, where people who've got their electric vehicles plugged in can either be charging them or can be supplying power back to the grid at certain times of the day. How realistic a plan is that? It is realistic, yeah. And Tesla are effectively becoming an energy supplier in the UK as we go forwards. They're building the infrastructure such that their supercharging network will allow cars to be able to discharge back. And that's what's called vehicle to grid or V2G. So you do end up with the fleet of electric vehicles effectively being a large battery for the country to be able to call upon, which is a fascinating dynamic and evolution of the power market. I had one further little anecdote on Tesla with insurance and when you mentioned that, Jess, which is that I was recently speaking to a claims expert in the UK motor insurance industry who was saying that at the moment there's a massive supply problem with replacement Tesla windscreens. (laughs) So good luck to Elon Musk in sorting that one out. I guess another question I had is... We obviously know with electric vehicles that they're meant to be great, they're going to help with the transition to net zero, but a huge issue with them is the battery and the materials that are needed to get them. Is that still a huge obstacle that we need to overcome in terms of actually electric vehicles really becoming environmentally friendly, or have we still got a long way to go with that? There's still a good way to go there, and there are a number of technologies being worked on at the moment across the board. A particularly recent issue on that front has been the supply of key metals to produce those batteries and the prices of those metals skyrocketing, lithium prices, nickel prices, etc., which has actually threatened a number of new battery deployments on the energy side and is making the EV industry tremble a little bit as well. So it's a key blocker to being able to deploy these at scale. Is that because Russia's big supplier of raw materials? Yes, essentially. How does the energy market work to the extent that when I plug something in and I turn it on, how does it then work? I think it's underappreciated how much is going on behind the scenes there. So electricity is a very interesting commodity in that in the main, it can't really be stored. We do have storage capabilities, but the majority of power is being generated in real time to service that increased need. So if you plug something in and something needs to generate to provide that power and National Grid are working every second to ensure supply meets demand. So that power that you're using there might have been traded years ago. A nuclear station might have said, I'll provide power for the whole of that month and sell that to a supplier. It might have been sold an hour ago, where a wind farm said, I'm going to be generating more power because it's windier, I can sell that power. Or it might have been from National Grid two minutes ago that says, I can see a forecast uptick in demand, we're going to need to source power from somewhere. So you have this constant balancing act of supply and demand and every action 
is causing that to change. So classic examples are halftime, a football match, <laughs> National Grid will always see an uptick because everyone's popping the kettle on and they need to source that generation from somewhere. That system where everything is supplied at the price of the most expensive generator, is that just the rules of the game? Is that just sort of legislated? Is that the result of market forces? It's essentially the outcome of a free, liberalized power market. So as a very brief primer to how the power market works, you have your suppliers who represent us, individuals represent businesses, and they will predict what our demand is going to be. They'll then go to the market to buy power for that. And so you have this wide range of generators. They might be wind, they might be gas, they might be solar. And the supplier will effectively say, I have 100 customers I need to buy power for. Can you promise to supply that power? Now, if you're approaching the gas plant, the gas plant will say, well, I've got these costs associated with using gas and the carbon tax, etc. So my price is this. The wind plant is not incentivized to say, well, it doesn't cost me anything to produce power, so I'll sell it to you for a penny. The price is being set by that demand. And if we zoom out to the whole country, the amount of demand that we have versus the amount of renewable capacity and delivery means that gas will be needed. So you end up with a price being set by effectively the most expensive gas plant there. And those trades are happening from years ahead through to hours ahead. So if we're talking about later this afternoon, there'll be power that was traded two years ago to deliver power this afternoon, and there'll be power being traded right now to deliver for this afternoon. And so because gas is always needed in some measure, it ends up setting the price. Exactly. So when we get to the stage where there's sufficient renewables going on that gas is sometimes not needed, then we might see a significant drop in the price. Exactly. And we actually saw that for the first time at the start of lockdown. So a really unprecedented shock in drop of demand as we all locked down and stayed in. If we had periods where we didn't need any gas and we saw actually electricity prices go negative. So what that meant was power stations were actually saying, I'll pay to stay on because it's going to be more expensive for me to shut down and turn back on. So I'll pay you to keep generating power. Yeah, it was a very weird time probably during lockdown kind of a weird mini experiment what happens if the whole world shuts down how does the energy market react to it I guess we're very much straying into kicking off the topic I feel Charles and I have used this what's been happening in the news to grill you on electric vehicles (laughs) possibilities by the sound of it so one of my questions was I know that the war in Ukraine has massively impacted the energy market but I feel like even prior to that there were rumblings to some extent that energy prices were going up and things were going to be getting worse. Do you have a view on to what extent it's purely the kind of increases that we're seeing at the moment are driven by the war in Ukraine or what are the kind of other underlying factors which is kind of creating the higher energy prices at the moment? Yeah, great question. So as you kind of rightly point, we were seeing this before the invasion. That's really due to a global reliance on gas and a sharp increase in demand as countries came out of lockdown. So we started seeing demand coming through from Asia and from Europe. Russia kind of sitting there in the middle as a large provider of that gas. Prices started to go up as a result of that increasing demand. From our perspective, close at home, we don't actually rely on Russian gas very much. It only makes up about 4% or so of our gas supply. But gas is a global market. So our prices are still effectively being set by what's going on in country with greater reliance. So we were seeing that creep up already. There are a number of 
political issues around that. And we had our own issues around, for example, we'd closed a large gas storage site a few years ago, and there were concerns around had we prepared ourselves for a cold winter with expensive gas. And then we obviously had the invasion, which caused everything to skyrocket even further. What other countries do we rely heavily on for our gas or other energy supplies? A lot of our gas is from the North Sea. And in terms of energy supplies, we are actually relatively well interconnected to Europe, although we have less interconnection than the European countries do to each other because of their nature of being bordered with each other. But we have connections to France, the Netherlands, to Belgium, Norway, and Ireland as well. So at times of high demand, we're able to call on additional power source from those countries. And kind of classic example might be that France, which sources most of its power from nuclear, is often able to export power to us where we have higher demand and less cheap power as France. And do you think that that with everything, it's obviously the war in Ukraine has meant that we're going to be looking to rely less on Russia, not just us, but the whole of Europe for its energy going forward. To what extent do you think we will also stop relying on other European nations and try and, I say become self-sufficient, but I know that's not really how it works because it is a global market. So do you still feel that the interconnectivity is to some extent baked into the system so much that it's almost impossible to remove? It's a good question. And I think there's a difference there between the gas markets and the reliance around the world on gas and our own power demand. So one way to kind of break that link is for us to stop being reliant on gas. That will help us disassociate our power prices from that global gas price. The question around Are we going to be relying on power from the interconnected countries? Absolutely, we are. We're planning to be building more interconnectors. And this allows us to have access to a wider mix of technology so that, for example, if the wind isn't blowing much, but it's raining more in Norway and the reserves are filling up where they source a lot of their power from hydro, we're able to call on that power. So you end up with a mitigation impact there. That said, I'd say the heart of the energy strategy now going forward is to become increasingly self-sufficient. So uh, the kind of takeaway of the recent strategy that came out a few weeks ago was let's go domestic. It'd be great if you could just walk us through the main features of that UK strategy. And I'm also keen to get your view on how realistic the different parts of that strategy are. The energy strategy, it'd been a long time coming. The market had been waiting for some clear direction on where the UK was heading. I think in a summary, it was probably decarbonize quicker and go domestic is probably the takeaway. Some really ambitious targets coming out for offshore wind. The industry was really pleased to see that. That was a revised estimate for 2030 that we should have 50 gigawatts of offshore wind, and that included targets for floating offshore as well, which we can come on to. I think the key interesting element of the strategy was how strong the nuclear element was. So the UK is committed to setting up a state body Great British Nuclear, that's going to target 24 gigawatts of nuclear to be deployed by 2050. That does certainly come with challenges. We haven't historically been too good at deploying new nuclear at scale and on time and on budget. So that was a strong signal that the market needed. The other key element to the strategy was actually trying to address some of the areas that are required to support those new deployments. For example, the networks and the infrastructure to actually get that away and also promoting that investor confidence to be able to encourage that capital to flow in. That kind of leads us into that how realistic is it point. It's quite hard to deploy that level of technology at scale that quickly. It's fantastic we're setting those ambitious targets, but we do need the regulations and the infrastructure to follow suit. And we do need to think about the other side of 
how that market's going to operate. It's great to say, well, let's build loads of wind. But what happens on days where it's not windy? And we need to think about how much flexible capacity we do need to back up the system. And our own projections are showing quite significant volumes of flexible capacity needed and a small number of hours to back up those times when an overly reliant wind system and the wind isn't blowing. So I think what I'm taking away from this is that you think it's quite ambitious and in some ways good that it's ambitious in terms of it should be good in terms of helping us to meet our net zero targets and transition to a greener energy grid. But how realistic that is and the practicalities of actually delivering it are questionable. Absolutely. And I think just to add to that, I think one of our key disappointments with the strategy was the lack of focus on energy efficiency. It's an easy win to start looking at how can we actually use our power more efficiently in houses. We have one of the least efficient housing stocks in Europe and addressing energy efficiency would both be a way to reduce the reliance on needing to build significantly more capacity, but also be a shorter term benefit to the energy bill crisis. And we didn't really see any of that. If we're going to be building all this additional energy generating capacity and infrastructure, presumably lots of other countries are wanting to do exactly the same thing. And so presumably internationally, the skills and resources and technology and materials needed to do this are going to be subject to a lot of competition. Do we actually have the local skills and resources to do what the government is planning? Two aspects of that. Firstly is the route to decarbonisation will vary country to country depending on their local resources. So, for example, we're going very big on offshore wind because we have the capability to do so. Other countries will be taking different approaches via hydro, via solar, for example, as larger constituents. So there's a little bit of diversification in terms of the requirements there. The other is the interest in the new technologies. And so particularly thinking about nuclear, for example, the ambition isn't just to build enormous nuclear stations, but to build small modular reactors as well. And there, for example, the UK are very keen to be growing that new technology and capability in the UK. So, for example, working with Rolls-Royce to build out those SMRs, small modular reactors. There's a two-pronged approach there that we're actually trying to create the industries and promote technologies that benefit UK jobs, resources and capabilities. Like you said, the UK has gone big in wind power. It has done for a number of years and is continuing to do so. How long do these wind plants last before they need serious maintenance and before their generating capacity starts to drop off in a big way? Certainly, you have unexpected maintenance, which can happen when wind turbines are out in the sea being exposed to the elements. And you will see turbines break. They will catch fire. They actually have safety mechanisms in place where if the wind's blowing too much, that they'll turn themselves off to protect themselves. You're generally looking kind of 20 to 30 years for the lifetimes in terms of the regular updates and maintenance. Naively, I would say, oh, they don't look that complicated or have that much technology or it's just a wind turbine. But I imagine from when they were started being used to where we are now to where we will be in the future, the kind of sophistication of them has changed quite a lot. Are the actual turbines themselves going to increase in their sophistication and therefore able to generate more power? Or are we kind of almost reaching a plateau in terms of the technology within them? We can't continue to exponentially increase capabilities of wind turbines. Wind turbines have been getting bigger, they've been getting more efficient, they've been getting more powerful, and crucially, they've been getting a lot cheaper. And that's been a really good byproduct of a very strong subsidy and direction of the UK to go big on offshore wind that's promoted a lot of investment and research in this area. The key challenge for offshore wind is, as we say, actually getting that power 
into the UK and getting the networks and infrastructure in place to be able to utilize all of it. That's where, for example, using floating offshore wind, which is a new technology that's coming out, which allows us to go into deeper seabeds, is opening up the ability to locate in more places around the UK. In terms of the projections that you have in terms of what the energy market will be and what the mix of energy might be going forward, what are the kind of new technologies or new sources of energy that you're forecasting will become more of a factor going forward? In addition to the kind of advancements on wind and nuclear being floating wind and small modular reactors, the key one growing in our forecast is hydrogen and production production from there. And hydrogen offers a number of opportunities, firstly to help us hard to decarbonize sectors, but also to utilize that wasted renewable energy. So sticking a green hydrogen electrolyzer near renewable sources of generation. And when that excess power can't be used to effectively store that power over longer periods of time. That's effectively your indirect use. And then you have your direct hydrogen use where we can look at hydrogen transport, particularly haulage, looking at hydrogen boilers. There are a number of other areas around heat and transport, particularly that are harder to decarbonize, but hydrogen offers a new solution too. And what kind of time frame are we looking at or potentially looking at for this to become more mainstream? The government has just, in the strategy, revised up its targets for 2030 for hydrogen production to 10 gigawatts. So we are talking about this decade. And the approach is very much, let's start at a small scale. They're referring to hydrogen villages, then hydrogen towns, for example, growing in size. So we are talking over the coming years now, and we're certainly having a lot of conversations with the investors and utilities starting to look at the hydrogen space as a very practical solution in the next few years. I was keen to ask you, Rajiv, going into a bit more detail about how you and our colleagues in LCP's energy practice help people across the energy sector. You talked a lot about analytics techniques, and I know you've got a background in that area. What are some of the techniques that are particularly important and valuable in our work in the energy sector? So it really depends what you're trying to model and over what time horizon. So as I mentioned earlier, we have two kind of key areas of the business. The first is long-term forecasting. So how is that power market going to evolve? There, we're able to forecast every half hour for the next 40 years and to forecast what the power price would be, what the generation mix would be, and running that over different simulations in terms of what demand might be, how much the wind might be blowing, etc. Those are using fairly traditional energy modeling approaches from a fundamental basis. So actually looking at the dynamics of this power station, could it turn up for six hours in a row? How long would it need to be off for? We're going right down to that granularity. When we look at the next few hours, so when we're helping traders in real time, you need to take some approaches that are rooted in the power market. So we are looking directly at that power station's on right now. It's going to need to be on for the next two hours so we can bank on that power being generated there. But then we're also needing to use sophisticated techniques around machine learning, for example, to forecast what wind and demand might be doing for the next hour or two. Because there you don't want to be simulating a thousand different outcomes. You have a pretty good idea of what wind is doing right now. And so it's not too hard to forecast what it's going to be doing over the next hour or so. Are weather predictions very important there for forecasting whether the wind will still be blowing in a few hours time or tomorrow or whatever? They're absolutely fundamental now to being able to forecast power prices in the UK as we are. We are very exposed to the weather. Has that created healthy impetus for more accurate weather predictions? 
it's been interesting. I've ended up using our tool to see if it's going to be windy later on and I need to know <laughs> what I should wear. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. There's certainly been a large advent of players in this space, us being one, but a number of forecasters looking at, at how can we forecast wind certainly better over the next few hours. And I guess a key development has been that LCP has just acquired, it was announced yesterday, Delta EE, um, to kind of join the work that you and your team do. Do you want to just tell us a little bit more about what they do and how that might change the work that you guys do? We're really excited about this as a development for our energy practice and wider LCP. So I guess historically, our energy practice has focused on what we call the upstream power market. So modeling your large generators, modeling the networks, understanding where power prices will go. And historically, that's been fine because demand was kind of fixed. You knew what demand would be doing and you really needed to model the generation of how to get there. As we go forwards, that's not going to be the case anymore. We're going to have local community networks around energy. We're going to have EVs. That consumer empowerment is going to mean demand becomes a moving target and is responsive to generation. So you're not really going to be able to forecast generation anymore without forecasting what consumers and trends are there. That's exactly where Delta E fit in. So they've been going for almost 20 years now, specifically focused on consumer end of the power market and what the energy transition will mean there. So we're really excited that together we offer now the kind of full suite of tools on the energy market to help our clients. What's been a really other interesting side of this is how we can support our wider LCP clients as well. Clearly, ESG and the transition is high on the agenda for pretty much everyone now. Delta E's capabilities on the kind of research side of things, forecasting what the transition will mean for companies, businesses and business models is a really exciting place where we can support the wider business. That's really useful to know. And certainly the insurance firms that we deal with, ESG is very high up on the agenda, not only in terms of their underwriting strategy, but also their own impact as a business. Rajiv, I know you've been on our Investment Uncut podcast, so this won't come as too much a surprise to you. We like to ask our guests some fun questions at the end to get to know them a little bit more. So my question to you is, if you could do any job, so you can't do your current job, nothing within LCP, nothing in kind of financial services, what would you do? I think I'm going to revert to my five-year-old self here because it's becoming increasingly more interesting now is I'd probably want to be an astronaut. Oh, <laughs> fantastic. One of the Tesla or SpaceX. <laughs> exactly. It looks like it could be within our lifetimes, but that starts to become more real. So that'd be pretty cool. It's crazy, isn't it? Other question from me. If you were having Jess and me round to your house for dinner, what would you cook for us? <laughs> I'm a bit of a cook, actually. Ooh, I do quite okay. like cooking. And I think probably fresh pasta would be my go-to. Oh, that's Making amazing. Making fresh pasta. <laughs> I think we need to go into specifics here. So what shape of pasta? <laughs> I have all sorts of pasta makers going on at home, actually. Recently making some fresh ravioli. And what's inside the ravioli? Been dabbling with some egg yolk ravioli and some with ricotta. I think we that's actually delicious. need to take Rajiv up <laughs> on his kind of... <laughs> We'll find a date in the diaries because I think we need to make this happen as soon as possible. Fantastic. <laughs> Energy markets and pasta. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rajiv, for spending time with us today. This has been fascinating and look forward to chatting again in the future. Excellent. Likewise. That's all we have time for this week on Insurance Uncut. Please join us in two weeks' time for another episode. This podcast is brought to you by LCP. We'd like to thank Nikki Freegard, Deepika Misra, Megan Frost, and Matthew Passy for helping to produce this episode.
This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be taken as advice. All views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are purely their own opinions and do not represent those of LCP, its clients or affiliates. LCP makes no warranty, guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast.